0: If you have your Bibles, um, please open to Proverbs chapter 1. We are starting a new series today. Uh, it's my privilege to be able to be the, the first one to talk uh, on the, this new series on uh, Proverbs. And the beauty of this is we've just wrapped, if you've been tracking with us, we've just wrapped a long series on creation and uh, how God has created us in the Imago day, in the image of God. And one of the things we've been created for is knowledge and wisdom. And so that is really what we're going to be learning about here in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs. And this is going to be slow uh, and very intentional this summer. We're going to take today and then two more Sundays to be introductory to the text. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about the rather binary choice of wisdom or folly that Proverbs would suggest to us. And then two weeks from now, we're going to talk about the value of wisdom And then after that, all summer long, all the way through until Labor Day, please don't picture it, right? We're just in spring. Don't think about Labor Day too much. But all the way to Labor Day, we've got 14 weeks carved out to go through the major themes of Proverbs on relationships and words and emotions and then virtues and vices. And it's a great summer series because you can consume it out of sequence. If you're away, totally understand, hope you have a great time, but I encourage you to track back with us. Check the recording, grab the podcast. If you end up listening to these messages out of sequence, that's not going to be a problem, but don't don't miss out completely. I hope you go back and tune out to any that you might be missing. So Proverbs chapter 1, I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight And really as a general overview to the book of Proverbs, I love what Eugene Peterson wrote in the message as he does uh, to introduce all the books of the Bible. Uh, He wrote a, a fairly brief synopsis that I'm going to read here just to orient what it is Proverbs is about. Many people think that what's written in the Bible has mostly to do with getting people into heaven, getting right with God, saving their eternal souls. It does have to do with that, of course, but not mostly. It is equally concerned with living on this earth, living well, living in robust sanity. In our scriptures, heaven is not the primary concern to which earth is a tag-along afterthought. On earth as it is in heaven is Jesus' prayer. Wisdom is the biblical term for this, on earth as it is in heaven, everyday living. Wisdom is the art in living skillfully in whatever actual conditions we find ourselves. It has virtually nothing to do with information as such. A college degree is no certification of wisdom, nor is it primarily concerned with keeping us out of moral mud puddles, although it does have a profound moral effect upon us. Wisdom has to do with becoming skillful in honoring our parents, raising our children, handling our money, conducting our sexual lives, going to work, exercising leadership, using words well, and treating friends kindly, eating and drinking healthily, cultivating emotions within ourselves, and attitudes towards others that make for peace. Threaded through all of these items is the insistence that the way we think of and respond to God is the most practical thing we do. In matters of everyday practicality, nothing takes precedence over God. Proverbs concentrates on these concerns more than any other book in the Bible. Attention to the here and now is everywhere present. In the stories and legislation, the prayers and the sermons that are spread over thousands of pages in the Bible, Proverbs distills it all into riveting images and aphorisms that keep us connected in holy obedience to the ordinary. Does that interest you? Does that sound like something that maybe we need right now? That's why I'm so excited about taking this series this summer. Proverbs is a book of of wisdom poetry, and the goal of this wisdom is to develop skill in living in the order that is embedded into God's creation. And I would define wisdom as simply this. Wisdom is knowledge applied. Much of what we will read in the weeks to come is um, wisdom that's attributed to King Solomon. Solomon was the second son of David and Bathsheba. If you don't know that story, King David is the second king of Israel and David had everything he needed as king, and yet he looked out on to another rooftop, and he saw Bathsheba, and he decided he wanted her as well, and that led to an affair that led to David as commander-in-chief of the army um, ordering Bathsheba's husband to the front line so that he would be killed. And ultimately, he was called to account for this sin by the prophet Nathan, who said, this isn't right. And yet, Solomon ascends the throne after King David dies, even though Solomon wasn't David's firstborn son. Very countercultural to the day. And I think it's a beautiful picture of God's redemption story that says, even a mess that David created in his affair with Bathsheba was still redeemed for something good. And that's not to say that we have a hall pass to go and do what we want and and knowing that God would clean it up. Nothing is further than the truth. In fact, hear me clearly, David both inflicted and endured tremendous suffering because of his poor decisions, but God redeemed it anyway. And this is a picture of how God works in the world. If God couldn't work in the brokenness of man, the Bible would have ended after Genesis chapter three. That's not the case. God's not handcuffed by our sin. He redeems despite our sin, and so it's a beautiful picture of how Solomon is used in the Bible despite his broken beginning. Last week, Aaron read from 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon became king. His father David dies, and the, the uh, reign of Solomon begins, and so God visits Solomon in a dream, asks Solomon, what is one thing you would like me to give you? And Solomon very wisely asks for wisdom. Not riches, not fame. He asked for wisdom. Solomon was wise before even being blessed with wisdom. And it's an interesting thought to think about what you dream about. Say hello for me. (laughs) What you dream about, right? Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Interesting thought. And so the book of Proverbs itself, as you go through it, is broken up into two parts. Chapters 1 to 9 that read as a letter of advice from father to son, or maybe even from master to apprentice. It's totally relatable because as a father, it's the kind of thing that I, I desire to impart on my own son because it's the kind of wisdom I wish I would have consumed when I was that age. It's very clear uh, that the, the original hearer of the text was a young man. That explains much of the female imagery that we're going to get into next week, woman folly and woman wisdom. And that's not to say that Proverbs is excluding women. It's just that the original hearer, the the reader of this letter, was a young man. And then the second part of the book, which starts in chapter 10, is that collection of Proverbs themselves. I picture post-it notes, you know, or, or, or a scribe on, on hand to say, write this down, this one's important, I want to capture this. And the book of Proverbs as a whole is incredibly poetic. Much is lost in the English translation because the original Hebrew used acrostics, for structure. It used rhyme for words that we simply don't get a chance to appreciate. The other thing to know about Proverbs is that although Solomon was the primary contributor, he wasn't the only uh, contributor, and it was likely authored or compiled a couple of hundred years after Solomon's uh, death. It brings forward some wisdom from other people besides Solomon, even people outside of uh, Israel. It actually reads more like a family recipe book or an heirloom that's been curated over time and then passed down from generation to generation as it's been perfected and honed. In uh, chapter 25, uh, it speaks of the men of Hezekiah that were doing some of this compiling activity. And there are nine generations from King Solomon all the way to King Hezekiah. This reads like something that's been put together over a period of time. And so I share that because I think it's important to understand the nature of the book and where it came from and the original purpose so it can inform how you read it. Many generalizations that are not necessarily universal truths, but the imagery can easily be swapped to a female reader instead of a male reader, or an older man instead of a younger man. That's the purpose of Proverbs. And Proverbs is also going to share wisdom from two sides of the same coin. That's not to say that it contradicts itself. It's more about adding relevance to all walks of life and in all circumstances. And so there's lots of background there, but in the remaining time that we have today, I want to talk about three quick points to cover. The foundation of wisdom, sources of wisdom, and why wisdom matters. The fear of the Lord is a phrase that's repeated often in the book, and it's foundational to everything we're going to talk about as it relates to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. I read it in verse 7 earlier. It's restated later in chapter 9, verse 10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy Spirit is insight. Same concept, shaped a little bit different, but the similarity is that the fear of the Lord is the catalyst. And when we hear the word fear, we're not talking about being scared, per se. This isn't about being uh, in terror or in worry. It's more about awe and respect. Yes, God has the power to strike us down if he so choose, but his character tells us that he's not going to do that. And so when you read the word fear, you might consider instead the word revere. Fear equals revere or reverence for the creator God of the universe as we choose to pursue the same character traits that we see in God. And if that definition doesn't resonate with you, we can also look at it from the opposite direction. Think about the fear of losing something. If you lose your wallet, it's inconvenient. I've got to get a new driver's license. I've got to replace my credit cards. If you lose your phone, there's a different panic there my people, right? How my connections, my life was in that. And and so I would argue that if that's your reaction, it probably means you fear your phone more than you fear your wallet or possessions that you've accumulated over time. If you lose those, it's, it's one thing, but if you lost your entire bank balance, that's another. How do those weigh out? Or from a character perspective, if you had to choose between compromising success and compromising integrity, that might show you a picture about what you revere more. Chances are, the thing you fear losing the most is actually what you revere the most. And these are all ways for us to describe love Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, he taught where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And what we're talking about here is love. What you fear the most is what you love the most. And in order to attain wisdom, what we fear the most needs to be God. Um, I listen a lot to Matt Chandler, uh, pastor of a big church in Dallas. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to borrow an analogy that he used recently Um, about our our button-up shirts here. So um, when I, and by the way, this is like post-COVID, this is like tuxedo, am I right? This is as dressed up as we get these days. Button-up shirt is... But here's the universal truth about a button-up shirt. If I get this first button wrong, the rest of the shirt is gonna be wrong. You're gonna look at me like this, and say something is off, something's not right. There's a big gap here. Um, and, and no matter how many other buttons I get right, I could get five out of six, but it's still wrong. If the first button is wrong, the whole shirt is wrong. And so when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, that's the first button. It doesn't matter the other buttons that maybe are, are, are look right or if my shirt is pressed, or, or otherwise um, the uniform looks okay. If I miss the first button, then the whole shirt is wrong. I think this is so important because when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, um, I, I think we tend to get this wrong a lot. Our culture that tries to fill our craving for knowledge by artificial means. And like feeling sluggish after an overdose of junk food, the misinformation of culture really starts to impact our spiritual health. We become worn down by the seduction of quick fixes that our culture tries to offer, and they start to pull us in the wrong direction until suddenly we're fearing or revering the wrong thing. We end up fearing creation more than the Creator We worry about our to-do list for tomorrow more than our spiritual health for today. We despise discomfort and inconvenience. We fear being put out and we have a fear of missing out. And that's because our culture screams to us that there's nothing more important than our modern self. That we should be the center of our own universes. And these loud voices are incredibly effective at grabbing our attention. Like being in a a crowded room in a social gathering where the person with the loudest voice just naturally gets the biggest audience, not because they're saying anything meaningful, but because it's incredibly hard to compete with that. Loud voices are tough to ignore. Loud voices draw crowds which then tends to get us in that mob mentality where we just find ourselves agreeing without considering the content. We just finished uh, a celebrated Easter last month, and what I find fascinating about reading the, the, the narrative about Holy Week is that a crowd that on Palm Sunday gathers together and shouts, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Five days later on Good Friday, that crowd shouts crucify him. What's changed in those five days? Truth hasn't changed. God's character hasn't changed. But Fear is set in. Fear has redirected hearts and minds from the fear of the Lord to the fear of the world and to the Jewish culture of that day that were so blinded by Old Testament tradition that they couldn't see the prophesied Messiah standing right in front of them. Their wrong fear was ruling their lives. Our desires govern our lives and our choices. We we are just oriented towards fulfillment right? A lotto jackpot of a zillion dollars really gets us thinking, right? What could I do with that? Well, maybe a full tank of gas. (laughs) That might be wishful thinking. Maybe I need two zillion dollars for that. But speaking of Solomon and his dream, what do you dream of? If you had to ponder a lotto win, what are you thinking about? Let's be honest, I'm fearing the world when I think of that. I'm not fearing the Lord. Bigger house, faster car, more toys, grander vacations, no more punching a clock. Let's be honest, if, if you stumble into that kind of cash, you're not buying needs. If you needed it, you probably had it already. You are oriented towards fulfillment. You're looking for the wants. And where do you think we get those ideas from that, that instill on our hearts? A 2021 study of self-reported data, mind you, um, said that on average, a person touches their smartphone 2,600 times per day. Unlock, click, scroll, like, rinse, repeat. Where do you think we're getting these ideas from, friends? What do you think um, the impact would be to our community? With the spiritual health of our group as a church, if we covenanted with one another to engage with a Bible app instead of a social media app, can you imagine what our world would look like? If we chose to engage with the still small voice of God instead of the loud voices of culture around us. Honest question, and I'm not looking for a show of hands, but let me challenge you to consider how your life would be different if the Bible was featured differently in your day, if the Bible was prominent. And I think the way you answer that question will also answer the question about what it is that you fear the most. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom without God. And don't confuse wisdom with success because nothing we acquire on our own has the opportunity to be more satisfying than wisdom. We gain wisdom by applying knowledge. And our fear of the Lord is orienting our hearts to love what God loves and hate what God hates. It takes humility on our part to admit that we're not the center of our own universe, that there's a bigger passion and purpose that we've been created for. And no matter how perfect my shirt might look or pressed or colored or matching or any of those things, if the first button is wrong, the whole thing is wrong. Our loving pursuit of true godliness is the only foundation that can handle every foolish thing that is thrown at us. And so we need to look to Jesus as the model of what's truly best. I encourage you, ask, where is your heart? Where is your worship? How do you use your words? How do you live life? To to fear God is to simply love God the most, and doing so is wise. One commentator, Lydia Brownback, said this, as we pursue wisdom and grow in it, we will find that we live increasingly in sync with God's ways. It's unavoidable. And to that end, King David, Solomon's father, had this prayer in Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Second point, because I want to talk a little bit about where we get truth from. See, the problem with loud voices uh, in our society is they're not always rooted in truth. In some ways, we're being lied to about the overimportance of temporal things. In other ways, we're being manipulated by the creative use of facts and things like errors of omission and the twisting of context. The end result of it is that our culture isn't honest with the truth. Uh, my mom reminded me of this recently. When I was growing up, I loved the newspaper. And, and when I would read the newspaper, I'd watch television news. I considered them to be reliable sources of truth. May, maybe they weren't completely trustworthy, that's fair. But they carried credibility because they were established, not to mention very expensive mediums to produce. And so that generated an implicit trust that they were rooted in reason and free from obvious bias. But over time, two things have happened. Number one, media has evolved and matured to the point where its power is really being better understood. The ability for a news program to editorialize and thus disciple its viewers by reporting only half the story or not reporting on stories at all that they don't want you to see. And the second thing is that media has become so much less expensive to produce. Now, anyone with a computer can put out content to the extent that we don't even know where this is coming from, what sources we can trust. Gone are the days of independent verification or or fact-checking of sources. And so because of this, I would encourage you that every news story that you see, every headline you might click on, from now on, Should only be consumed under the banner of opinion. Gary Kasparov, super smart guy, happens to be a chess grandmaster, said this. The point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda, it is to exhaust your critical thinking to annihilate truth. Does that resonate? That sounds familiar exhausting your critical thinking. And it's amazing to think how rapidly this has changed, where we live in a world that everyone with an Internet connection also has a megaphone, and so they can say whatever they want. And it's in this environment that we see so many people playing fast and loose with the truth. It's like truth is crowdsourced, and now the person with the most likes gets to decide what is true. This is where we start to see my truth and your truth and the You Do You movement that is just delegating responsibility for deciding what you think should be true down to each individual. Elementary students being indoctrinated to preferred pronouns. Middle school kids being pressured by influencers on social media or even teachers to make a statement about gender identity. Friends, is it any wonder that mental illness is so pervasive, particularly in our kids? Because now we live in such an oppressive society that places expectations on people that have to navigate and decide on this exponential new set of truths that God never created us to have to consider. Here's another example from social media. Tara and I were talking about this uh, earlier this weekend, and the impossible position that society places on mamas these days. If you're a stay-at-home mama, you're criticized for letting your kids drink tap water and for not paying for expensive limo-driven summer programs for your kids to be, to be you know, entertained by. But on the other hand, if you're a working mama and, and, and you're out trying to, to provide, you're, you're criticized for delegating the, the raising of your kids to teachers and nannies. And, and you don't love your family because you don't cook home-cooked meal for them. Like, moms these days cannot win. Like, this standard isn't true. You know it. You know it. But the reality is there is something in our soul that thinks it's true. And not to rail on social media, but, but like, you, you know those celebrity influencer Instagram posts. Like, like for every picture you see, there's a thousand that you don't, and there's 10,000 that were never taken. Like, you, you know this, right? It's not actually attainable. The reality is those pictures of frozen glimmers of hope from that person's life are posted by an exhausted mama on the couch at midnight wearing yoga pants that haven't been washed in three days. We know this, but we let our souls consume it as if it is truth. It becomes this vicious cycle of defeat because you're chasing truth from a source that just isn't true. And if you're a follower of Jesus, there should be no question about where you get your truth from. The book of Proverbs contrasts the the opportunity of wisdom with the lure of folly. Trev's going to unpack this next week and talk about the two paths uh, when we get together. But for now, I'll just summarize by saying that those loud voices or, or that new media or that fake news that tries to appeal to our heart and mind doesn't compete with the book. And it's not just a matter of convincing ourselves where to find truth. It's also about discipling others to look here for answers to with a desire to navigate well amongst noise and distraction. I want to consume and I want to propagate truth. So let me use an example from, uh, from the headlines here. Um, flames are mentioned in the Bible 681 times. Oilers <laughs> are not mentioned. I see a, I, I a hands right? We know the truth, (laughs) yet it's possible that there are other sources of truth that want to come in here. And um, at the risk of offending the Oilers fans, sorry, I accidentally pluralized that. Um, (laughs) I, I, I hope you hear me that this is a metaphor for how we live in the church, friends. With all seriousness, we do not keep a monopoly on the truth. And just because we see other things out there doesn't mean we dismiss. This is a chance for us to disciple, to to pull in, to get close to, to these folks. We want them to be near us. But here's the thing. We're gonna let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. Because the method is just as important as the message that we have. We cannot take our Bible and pound it over the top of someone's head as truth. Proverbs itself will tell us that is not wise. We have to choose our words. But by being in the Word, by believing that the Bible is the complete and inerrant word of God is where we need to plant a flag and boldly take a stand. Aquinas would say that since God is the creator of all that exists apart from himself, all truth, however and wherever it is discovered, is from God. It is unified and consistent and ultimately points back to God himself. The simplest definition of truth is the inevitability of God. And so since truth is, as God created it, is unified, is knowable, and defensible, this makes our job as truth-tellers not only possible, but crucial. We need to know and be prepared to defend God's truth. But we need to do that as peacemakers being gentle, loving advocates of biblical truth is not preaching from a soapbox. If anything, we can use that gentleness to to show the scars of where we failed at this already. I don't know about you, I've failed at this. I've tried it the world's world's way, and tempting as it may be for me to try it again, the stirring of my heart is instead leading me to shake off the folly that the world tries to offer and instead to accept the inevitable victory that we have from the wisdom of God who is faithful to give to us. Proverbs is a book about driving focus towards the skill of living well. And the wisdom that it encourages us towards is simply the application of knowledge and truth. A wise person lives life despite the inevitable difficulties. And so, third point why does any of this matter to us? You see, I think wisdom is the great equalizer because deep down we all crave to be wise, not necessarily just to feed our egos or um, because we might have a desire to not feel pain. I I just think that if there's a better, faster, cheaper, easier way, our hearts naturally lean in that direction. And because of that, Proverbs is actually a bit of a litmus test. You see, if if, if you want to be wise, but you don't want to follow God, I think you're going to find this frustrating. Like any good activity, wisdom is building a muscle. The world would tell you that you, just, you can do it on your own. You work hard enough, you can get it. But in the case of wisdom, the fitness center that you need to spend time in is the Word of God. Because the fear of the Lord is foundational to wisdom. It's not superfluous. Wisdom isn't something we, we can start to build on our own and attain and advance, and then maybe later I'll let God hone it or, or perfect it or sharpen It doesn't work that way. If you want to be wise, you need to love God. Let God pursue you. We get wisdom the same way we get God, through faith that leads to obedience and ultimately synchronizes our heart with His. Belief in the gospel is wise. And there will be a challenge for our hearts because uh, often wisdom is going to seem counterintuitive. Ultimately, wisdom is doing things the way God would do them, and, and our minds just aren't wired that way, right? The, the example of, of tithing, right? The, the idea that God could do more with 90% of our paycheck than we could do with 100% of it on our own. Like, I'm a math person, and I can tell you that God's economy just doesn't make earthly sense, but I choose to have faith in the creator of all things to know best how to use all things. Or um, the idea of the the wisdom of, of responding to anger with love instead of hate. The idea that actually turning a cheek is God's way of sending his message to the other person. If it doesn't make sense, if this sounds backwards, I think that actually is, is a, a sign of how much foolishness is really in us. We love what we fear. We fear what we love. And at the end of the day, I think we love God far too little. And I want to assure you that I'm asking these same questions myself. I need this too. It takes a shockingly short amount of time for my mind to forget the promises of God. And that's why I'm convinced that this is best pursued in community. See, if I want to see where God is using people, this is the church. If I want to see what God has to say, this is my Bible. If I want to see what's actually resonating on my heart, this is my prayer life. Because ultimately the the beauty of the gospel message is that we have a Savior who died to teach us wisdom. Proverbs coaxes us towards becoming wise by seeing how true knowledge comes solely from God. We need God's help through the illumination of the uh, Word from His Spirit, made possible by the sanctification of Jesus to show us what wisdom is, to help us lead effective lives that boldly stand out for Him and His truth. Jesus is the picture of perfect wisdom. Not because He demonstrated perfect wisdom, because He is perfect wisdom, and so that was easy for Him to show. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, God delights to give us that wisdom. And so where do we go from here? Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses that actually speaks more about the heartache and lament of long life. But at the end of the psalm in verse 11, the conclusion says this from Moses. So Lord, teach us to number our days so we may get a heart of wisdom. And the thought here, friends, is that our days are short. We don't know how long we have. And so what we do have should be treated preciously. If you did know how much time you had left in this world, I think you would spend that time a little bit differently. You would prioritize important things, not trivial matters. You would surround yourself with loved ones to make a few more cherished memories. The last thing you're going to do is waste time. And that's what Moses is talking about. When you live life as if your days are short, you are naturally going to lean towards wisdom. Loving what God loves. Hating what God hates. This is the fear of the Lord. But we can't do any of this without Jesus, who was and showed what all of wisdom really is. Sin entered the world when humanity wanted to take a shortcut towards knowledge, and in doing so, they completely missed out on wisdom. Yet God pursued and redeemed the brokenness that we created. He demonstrated how perfect relationship is restored in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, who ministered on earth as wisdom, showing wisdom. Let me leave you with this verse from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the picture of wisdom that you show to us in your word. Lord, thank you that you delight to make us wise and that this is a gift that you love to give. Lord, would you expose our hearts to the folly of where we might be getting an incomplete or improper truth from? Would you show us where truth is and what the fear of the Lord really means so that we can get this top button right and really understand wisdom for what it can be. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and it's in your beautiful name we pray, amen.